This episode is sponsored by ContentFind, a premium video editing and content repurposing service for busy content creators, influencers, brands, podcasters, YouTubers, and marketers. ContentFi provides unlimited end-to-end editing and repurposing services to help you get your video and audio content edited and repurposed quickly, easily, and reliably. Join other busy content creators, founders, brands, and marketers who now spend even more time creating while they take care of the rest. You no longer need to worry about spending hours editing anymore. Just create content, build your audience, and grow your business. If you're a content creator looking to save time and money, or looking to outsource your content marketing team, get your first free video edited now at contentfi.co. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast, or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS dash podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about sharing the journey of building a legal tech SaaS business to $10 million in ARR. Today, we have our guest, Vishal Sunak, joining us. Vishal is the founder and CEO of LinkSquares, the first AI-powered end-to-end contract lifecycle management platform. Vishal is responsible for developing strategies aimed at assisting both corporate legal and finance teams with the review of their contracts and works to prevent their customer journey from customers from having to read each contract one by one. Vishal founded LinkSquares with the goal of building great products to improve how business operates. Prior to fun- founding LinkSquares, he held positions in operations and product management at Backupify and Insights Squared. So welcome, Vishal. Super excited to have you on SaaS District Show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Vishal, so... Uh, Tell us, what's your personal background? What's been your past positions up until, I believe, you were a director of sales of operations at Inside Squared in 2015? Uh, yeah, so uh, I studied engineering uh, through my academic career and uh, actually started building hardware for the military, like right out, of, right out of university, which is way different than what I do now. But uh, a lot of kind of good learning, got a a lot of good learning and foundation in, in like building and developing like really amazing technology products. And then made the switch into uh, software as a service and B2B SaaS around 2013 uh, at Backupify. Uh, and then uh, continue the journey on it, Insight Squared. And then decided it was my time to uh, to be a founder full-time and take the journey in uh, 2016 and, and haven't looked back. Did you uh, did you actually build the this company Link Squares while you were working, or did you quit kind of uh, cold turkey and decide to focus one hundred percent on this? Yeah, it's a, it's a good story. So uh, I have a co-founder, Chris, and uh, we we were both we were both thinking about kind of when the right moment was. Uh, it's good to start a company in the early days, kind of have a good division of labor. So uh, Chris actually decided to to go full time first, maybe about eight months before me. I was uh, working on the product and still able to kind of develop it nights and weekends. So, uh, but but as Chris was kind of leading the customer discovery and the questions of kind of what the product should be and how it should operate, uh, he actually decided to go first. So I joined him later when kind of we started to create a 
critical understanding and I felt like I was missing out on conversations I should have been in. So, yeah, I mean, it's not always as clean cut as just saying, I'm going to quit today and, and take the journey, but it was mostly like that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, you have a lot of things to look uh, consider. Uh, can, can you walk us through the process, though? I mean, at those initial stages with your co-founder, uh, you know, from the building it, launching and then growing it, uh, you know, from the origin of the idea, the problem you're looking to solve and, you know, how, how's it going so far? It's been an incredibly amazing journey and, and one of the most rewarding journeys I think I've ever done in my life. I think becoming a dad is only probably, you know, up there, uh, you know, ha having a kid and, and being a dad. So I'm um, very similar in that sense. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, we were, we were working at Back Home Five, Chris and I, we saw this challenge around uh, during uh, acquisition. So we were being acquired. A uh, car company asked us what was inside all these customer agreements. They had specific questions. We didn't track anything. We were kind of disorganized. It was like a light bulb moment to kind of think that, uh, is there a need for a new product in sort of like an older uh, market, right? And so contract management had been around for about 20 years, building software kind of pre-signature, helping docs get to the point of signing. But we thought about it like different because we didn't have a pre-signature like getting a doc to the point of signature, these are docs that were already signed. We didn't know what was inside them. So um, that was kind of the, the, the genesis and the thesis. And so from there, it was it was a long journey, customer discovery. Uh, we ultimately figured out that in more established companies and bigger companies, uh, which we didn't have this role inside Backupify, uh, a general counsel is the person, the, the head in-house lawyer is the person who ultimately has the responsibilities of this. And I asked Chris how many general counsels he knew. He said zero. I said zero. And then we just started kind of figuring out that, like, if we don't talk to, like, 100 general counsels and validate kind of the journey that we're on, the path we're on, the problem that we're solving, uh, we ultimately weren't going to be able to get very far. And so that, that cemented the thesis that companies don't know what's inside executed agreements for a lot of scenarios. First of all, the volumes can be really large, thousands, tens of thousands of agreements. They're redlined. Um, they're redlined for your own kind of customer contracts. You negotiate different terms in and out. If you work with big brands, it's a, it's a pretty uh, common practice that they force you into third-party paper, like a little baby company like Backupify would have been kind of forced into third-party customer agreements by much bigger companies like a Logitech or Yahoo. That's a very common practice. And also, like on vendor agreements, they're, they're never your paper because because you you probably aren't at the scale where you're forcing some other company to use some sort of standard contract that you have for all your vendors. And so, it creates a situation where it's really hard to get answers in aggregate of like what you've agreed to, and it's really hard to track on a document by document that you signed what you've agreed to, and after it gets signed, it disappears somewhere into. Box, Dropbox, Google Drive gets attached into Salesforce, stays in people's emails, maybe goes on a network drive. And so that creates like this debt inside the company. And as as the company matures, you want to be on, on the forefront of knowing all this stuff, knowing contracts that have auto renewal, termination for convenience, free assignment, or what did you agree to elimination of liability? It creates this massive debt inside the company that's actually really hard to overcome and a pain associated with it. Uh, where people try to read their contracts one at a time for like a one-off project to try to pay someone to do it. It's very expensive. It's very time, time inefficient. And so that ultimately is a problem that we went 
after first, which is post-signature, what have you agreed to in your contracts? That's when kind of like an applied AI use case started to emerge. And so I would say that it's it's going it's going really well, and and uh, we're, we're we're certainly proud of the journey up to today. Nice. And, and can you share a little bit in terms of where you guys are in terms of size today? I think we mentioned about 10 million. Is that correct? And how has your trajectory of growth been in the last couple of years, including going into this year? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, kind of in the last couple of years, we're, we're, we're in like the 800% growth in the last couple of years. And so um, it's, it's really all the credit to the team and, and all the credit to the great folks that we have working, working with us that have such passion to to go and kind of re- revolutionize the space, and so um, a lot of the attributing there is also uh, the emerging of a real AI technology that can be very helpful and beneficial. Very cool. And then, can you can you kind of give some kind of specifics on terms of your growth strategies? Um, what really worked for you guys in the last couple of years for your team that that's kind of been executing? And on the flip side, I think it's equally important to understand what didn't work for for your market. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, to understand any growth strategy is to first understand the person that you're trying to sell to at a very deep level. Like, who is a general counsel? What do they care about? What do they do every day? What type of educational background do they have, right? What, what is their risk tolerance in a company, right? You know, and what we discovered was, I mean, these are people that, that have a doctorate level degree, right? A Juris Doctorate. Uh, they are folks that uh, are risk adverse. That's their job, actually, is to mitigate and understand risk for the company. So, um, you know, one of the growth strategies that's always worked is building trust pre-sales and how to do that through um, evidence of the product actually working. Right? There's a big kind of reputational thing that a general counsel will kind of have that, like, they don't make big asks like a CMO or a VP of sales where there's like a rotating carousel of 30, 40, 50 tools that they're buying to make an, an extra dollar every every month or every quarter, right? Um, they, they really haven't probably asked for a budget other than probably outside counsel spend and um, headcount for their own teams. And so, you know, it's like, how do you build trust that when you partner with Link Squares, buying Link Squares, enabling the success of it, the implementation, you won't fail. And you yourself as general counsel uh, or chief legal officer won't look like an idiot to your CEO or your CFO, right? And so the ways that, you know, we've, we've seen our growth exploding is, is taking the time pre-signature to prove it through like proof of concepts, um, prove the accuracy of the AI, prove the technology, talk, talk to the head of CS on our side that gives them comfort in the onboarding, onboarding process and essentially Hard out a scenario where success is inevitable and use all the evidence and how the success has worked in the past through like customer references. Um, purely like on the growth strategy, uh, no one emails the general counsel inside the company for anything good. And so they, they're, they are, um, they're pretty receptive to an outbound technique, which we used kind of in the early days and still, and still use to kind of also do the fun part of the business, which is to teach them about a new a new product, a new way of thinking. They may have heard of contract management players, other tools. Those may be focusing on pre-signature. This is something different. Can I explain it to you? Can I see if you have this pain? How do you deal with this use case, like contract review, you've raised cash, or something bad has happened in the company, like you had a data breach, or you missed your SLA uptime percentage? Like, Do you have that pain? Do you understand what we're trying to solve? And then can we go from there? 
Mm. So that's been a lot more kind of outbound sales focused. And then uh, can you, can you share anything that you've tried and that hasn't worked on the growth side? Yeah. Uh, we, we continue to, to, you know, experiment with like some more expensive channels, like cost per lead, like content syndication, like kind of pay-per-click advertising. I mean, if you don't have a lot of cash and we never really had a lot of cash in the early days, like what do you kind of build a really efficient, scalable channel to first generate pipelines and opportunity that could close. And, and um, we've, we've tested some of, some of those things out, continue to test some of them out. Uh, you know, pay-per-click advertising is, is great. It can be expensive. Uh, we continue to like you know, figure out if, it, if that, that's kind of a worthy spend in the future, that's like a channel that we mix in, we're mixing it in now. But in the early days, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, I'm not going to spend $20,000 a month on pay-per-click advertising for 1% maybe conversion rates and a ton of money going out the door for not a lot of return. And so that was kind of how we thought it would work well. It doesn't work well in all scenarios and all buyers, right? Like, um, you know, your average VP of sales probably gets 50 cold emails a day from some widget or new gadget or some YC company trying to sell them some new way of doing whatever they're doing today, CRM widget or prospecting widget or call widget or something like that. And so, um, yeah, so our strategy and outbound actually, you know, works really well. Still does. Very, very cool. And then shifting gears to the actual product. Um, so, you know, you guys are contract and legal tech platform. And you mentioned, you know, the, the, the term of the platform is to give total insights into the global SaaS commitments. Can you, can you explain exactly what that means? Yeah, I mean, plain and simply, that that these these contracts that that are in place and have been negotiated, uh, like I said, third party paper or many modifications, it's hard to have one aggregated view of the truth unless you go and you collected that truth manually. Like you went and you, you took the time to read every file that you executed and stored. 50 pieces of data and how you agreed to it in its final form in a spreadsheet or something, right? Which is completely unattainable. Um, no, no company can do that. No matter how big you are, it's painful, it's slow, boring, it's inaccurate, right? So um, in terms of like the total insights, it's, it's um, contracts where money's going out the door, like vendor contracts and payments, right? That you're required to do. Um, money coming in the door. Uh, your relationship with your customers, how you make money. Uh, and, and also kind of thir third category is just like obligations and commitments. Like I, I have to deliver the SOC 2 type 2 report annually or they have the right to terminate. So if you don't send it on time and you didn't know you had to send it, then that's a missed issue for you potentially. And so that's kind of what we think about like total insights. It's like these contracts are so important. People don't have the ability and haven't really been able to spend a lot of focus and effort on uh, getting ahead of scenarios and being proactive. They're mostly being reactive. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. So, I mean, you mentioned the case where, you know, pe people prior to kind of working with your platform, you know, they're using, you know, Google drives on their emails. It's kind of all over the place. You know, once they implement, you know, your, your CLM, what, what are you guys seeing in terms of percentages? Are you guys tracking something of how it's improving their, their, their business model and being more efficient, whether that's financially or, or elsewhere? Yeah, one of the kind of greatest opportunities that, that we see and we continue to see is that uh, there are opportunities when, when you're in renewing situations, you may have agreed to like static price increases. 
And uh, if you haven't written down that you could take 3%, 6%, 10%, there's an opportunity to make more money. Um, there's a, a e-commerce uh, platform that we have as a customer. They have a, also have a business model that's based on page views. When the pandemic hit, the driving to like online e-commerce, uh, uh, given that uh, the brick and mortar experience has kind of diminished uh, because of the pandemic, they actually found like millions and millions of dollars of revenue potential because they were able to easily locate like, okay, this customer gets 2 million page views a month. The actuals from their application is like showing like they're at like 8 million page views a month or whatever the answer is. And so we found, we found great situations there. Um, there's other kind of like legal implications also like specifically around assignment. Like if you're a, a venture back company, hopefully make an exit one day, assignment can actually block that sale if the contract's not freely assignable to like the company that's going to buy you. So uh, we've also seen scenarios like that where uh, the, there's the not having the knowledge is so greatly painful that now once you have the knowledge, you can even rest comfortably. Even now is not the right time to sell the company, but you know you're prepared in that situation. And also, um, as a corollary to that, supporting companies that do a lot of buy side M&A. So they're going out and growing through acquisition as a strategy, um, enabling them to make smarter decisions, even in like target companies when they're evaluating it, they have this amazing uh, insights product that they, they can essentially figure out and, and generate an answer um, top 200 contracts during a, a process where they're uh, looking at a target company to buy too. So uh, this data is super valuable. Uh, it, it, it can benefit, it can benefit many different perspectives, uh, whether you're managing vendor agreements, customer agreements, or, or even just knowing what you agreed to. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, I imagine like this space, you know, there's a, a lot of old, you know, kind of uh, old practices that are kind of kept in people's mind and the people who you're targeting, like the general counsels, they have an old way of thinking. How do you kind of, uh, you know, navigate around that? And can you, you know, as the expert in the space, can you share some specific, you know, challenges and risks when, you know, running the legal tech business and maybe because other people in this space are considering getting into this industry, what would you suggest to them? Yeah, sure. Uh, the general, the general counsel is the persona, uh, that, like I said, is, is rooted in a, um, being risk, risk adverse and B, um, reputational risk to being unsuccessful in, in an implementation. And so when you're thinking about that, when you're thinking about legal technology, you're thinking about, a tool where, first of all, we're a system of record. So security has to be top notch. Like, you know, we're SOC 2 type 2 certified. We have an amazing security posture. We actually had that for years and years and years, right? That enabled our growth. Security as a way to enable your growth, especially if you're a system of record, you have to think about that. Doing all the right things, encryption and, and all that stuff. Um, but the second thing is, is really uh, focused on uh, making your commitment to them, right? Like if you say that the onboarding is 45 days then the onboarding is 45 days and being able to continue to build trust. I mean, it's, it's a fun persona. It's a really like, I, I believe it to be the last department inside of a company that's going through like a technology evolution. Like I think finance was most kind of most recent with ERPs and, and subscription billing platforms and stuff like that. CLM, though it's not a new space, 
the way that we've thought about it and approached it post signature first is new, right? We're not we're not walking into a a customer and they're using some other AI powered contract analytics platform. I mean, the vast majority of people in our target market have chose to, to do nothing, or they don't even know that something better exists. They may have been indoctrinated with the pre-signature tools that are already available to them. They may have tried or failed or had different perspectives of whether it's the right fit. So there's a little bit of that evangelical sale, a little bit of that market education, which is really cool. Like, uh, honestly, it's really cool. It's not for everyone. Uh, you're going to have to educate people, especially if you're doing something new. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so we've also heard you on, on several other podcasts where you mentioned, you know, you talk about leveraging AI as your differentiating factor in organization, organizational success. Can you speak a little bit more about that? And also, what's your thoughts on really, you know, the need for implementing AI into your SaaS program? Because I know maybe many SaaS founders are, are like always considering that to, to give them the edge. Um, you know, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, um, implementing AI, uh, in, in, implementing this kind of machine learning, it's it's got a lot less to do with the technology, although the technology is super important, right? It's more about that, like, there's a problem that can be solved with this technology, right? Technology on its own don't get people to sign order forms. Just the presence of technology doesn't do it. Right. Even the presence of technology with AI doesn't do it, right? It has to be rooted in the solution to a problem that only a machine can do because of large, large volumes of data, complicated data sets, variations, patterns. That's really what you have to think about when you're going on a journey. If you're thinking AI could be the right case, the technology is super important. But even more important than that is... Is there a problem that can be solved with it? And sometimes it, it doesn't have to be, right? It doesn't have to be an AI journey. You shouldn't really start an AI company for the sake that you can tell your buddies that you have an AI company. You should use AI in a meaningful way. And by the way, it's not fun, cheap, or fast. It actually takes a lot of specialized talent, like data scientists and PhDs. There's kind of like an operationally kind of company commitment you have to make to take this journey which also like impacts your burn rate and impacts your cash forecast and ex- impacts your expense structure, impacts your ability to hire people with this skill set. I mean, every company in the world wants NLP scientists, right? data scientists with PhDs. You may be in a market where it's easy, like on the coasts, you may be out of market somewhere else. Finding that talent, although we're in kind of like a remote workforce, could be easier. It's also hard to do. Right. It's hard to do. And the impact of hiring the wrong person in a, in a data scientist capacity that takes you down a, a, a path where you may not have the knowledge of how to actually get what you need out of it could, could be a mess also. So don't do it just to say for, for the sake of saying that you have AI. Do it because it solves a real problem you believe in. And you believe that the AI can solve it. I mean, that's my take on it. No, no that makes perfect sense. And if somebody's you know looking to kind of go down that path and they're considering... You know, the real cost of, you know, what that, that looks like, you know, uh, can, can you share a little bit more? What, is, what does a team look like? What are some, you know, maybe estimated cost of what they should expect if they go down that route? Yeah, sure. Um, so because we're a web application and an AI component, we essentially have a web application team and then we have a separate data science team, right? And so you have to commit first to managing basically two different types of teams in parallel to get the objectives. Now, deeper inside a data sciences foundation, 
it's kind of like right brain, left brain type folks, right? You have people who are like PhDs, they're mathematicians, they're physicists. They have deep understanding of the math, the actual core mathematics of how uh, NLP or data science works. You need to also pair that with someone who can ship production level code that can be deployed on our infrastructure. And so like, that's a big kind of learning moment that we had was that we actually need both skill sets in the data science team because you may be a great physicist and wanting to work you know, out of academia and wanting to work at a company, they, they probably don't have the same skill set as someone who ships production level code and thinks about beautifully executed, testable, fully kind of edge case cornered code that can actually be deployed. So there's kind of that side of it. Then you need a great infrastructure engineer who understands how to run this on a, a cloud infrastructure and then consider things like costs and stuff like that. So, I mean, our engineering team is, is like, you know, 20-ish people um, growing every day hmm. and uh, really ultimately is a partnership between me, my CTO, and my VP of product and our lead data scientist to kind of mesh together the, the, the intersection and the uniformity of all these things we're trying to do at once, right? So, um, mm. I mean, at, at, 20, at 25 people, you can probably assume kind of what, what it costs to hire talent like this and great talent. It's not, a, like I said, it's not a cheap journey, a fun journey, a fast journey. Um, the other thing is with AI is it's academic in, it's academic until it's not, right? You have to tinker with it and, and experiment with it and try different algorithms and try different variations. And there's that academic part of it where like someone managing a schedule can say, well, how long could this take? Well, you know, two weeks from now, I'll know if it'll take 17 weeks, but like I have to wait two weeks to tell you whether it'll take 12 more weeks. Yeah. And so <laughs> if it does take, if it does take 12, 12 more weeks, then I mean, I have to tell you every four weeks, it'll take another eight weeks, right? And so there's kind of that academic part of it also, where mm-hmm. like, because the things that we're, we're creating are unpublished on the internet, we're the ones that have to invent it. And that takes time. And, and if you can't be pressured by like a schedule in some sense that you can work it on a schedule, but it's not like building a web application where you can estimate like, okay, a feature like this, you know, kind of estimate it it'll take two sprints or it'll take four weeks, right? It's not like that at all. A lot of it is like academic research and then pivots quickly into you got to now productionize it and then be able to ship it onto the infrastructure. Hmm. Super, super cool. Interesting stuff. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a massive challenge. And I mean, if you can pull it off. That, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so regarding the industry, you also mentioned that, you know, SaaS itself is solving the problem that the industry created. Um, what exactly do you mean by that? And how can maybe other SaaS founders leverage that for growing their, their own SaaS company and, and how they're building their, their, their businesses? Yeah, I mean, we all, we're all prioritizing kind of one unifying thing, which is recurring revenue if you're in this type of business model. And so because you're prioritizing that and that helps you uh, increase the value of a company that helps you raise money that helps you validate that you're on the right journey, that helps you kind of provide that evidence. Um, the, the challenges are linked to each other, right? You want to grow your subscription revenue because, hey, listen, there are companies that are doing a billion of ARR. There are companies that are doing a hundred billion of ARR. 
you want to be in that. We're all rated the same way, right? We're all rated the same way. And so the things you'll do to enable that are also opposed to the kind of risks that you have on the contract side, right? And so um, as you think about when you kind of reach, you know, a scale, eventually, if you're the CEO of the company or the CFO of a company, not knowing the answer will end up hurting you a lot more than than uh, you think, right? And so making sure that as you continue to grow your company, you also think about the debt you're creating in these contracts. Like, do you know them inside and out? Yeah, I, I've negotiated hundreds and hundreds of agreements myself, but also I don't remember like, you know, 400 agreements ago, what I agreed to like in 2017, or maybe that paper that we were using the contract has changed. And so there's that debt that's growing. Understand that you can't, you can't solve it when you have 10 people in the company and it may not be a problem, but one day it will become a problem. And so to the extent you can get out ahead of it, that's the best path forward. Love it. Love it. Uh, Vishal, let's kind of shift gears here, going into kind of the rapid fire questions. Uh, you know, let's tell me, you know, looking back, I don't know how old you are right now, but what's one advice you wish you had known and maybe would tell your, let's say, 25 year old self? <laughs> uh, more, more than 10 years ago. How about that? More than okay, 10 so years ago, 25 year old self. Uh, yeah, continue to be selfish about learning from experts. Mm. Uh, I had the joy of learning from so many great experts, be it product experts, sales experts, marketing experts. I, I honestly wish I could have done it even longer, just riding sidecar with these great minds that grew all these amazing companies I used to work at. I uh, can continue to try to seek opportunities to learn from more experts, especially if you want to take the founder game. Because there's a lot of things that I have to solve in the company where like if it was an easier decision, someone who works for me or works for them would have already solved it. And like right. to the extent where like you have to make a decision, but you don't have a lot of knowledge in whatever area, uh, how, do, how do you enable yourself to at least have a, a great mentor network or yourself, you have, you have the knowledge of it, right? Founders start from all different perspectives, but continue to, continue to learn from masters as much as you can, Vishal, 25-year-old Vishal. Love it. And I guess that's the, that's the key, right? At the end of the day, you want to make better decisions and you know, having those people, they'll, they'll give you that little tip and push that'll set you in the be much better direction than if you keep going on what you thought was the right way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Michelle, what are some of the biggest challenges you're currently facing in order to continue to grow Link Squares? I, and what I mean by that is, or, you know, what keeps you up at night? Not, not so much, uh, you know, keeps me up at night other than my two-year-old periodically. But uh, I would say the same things that I've always kept us up at night, uh, continuing to make customers happy and continuing to innovate on the product side and continue to push ourselves to truly change the way that people work. Uh, and then kind of the, the equally important is building the best place in Boston for folks to work at, where, where they, they seek us out, they, they join the company, we deliver on all our promises. It's a big thing for me, whether on the customer side or the employee side, delivering on the promise that we made to someone like, you're gonna come and work at Link Squares and whether you stay for a year, two years, 10 years, 40 years to the end, uh, you look back on that time and you say, this was really amazing. This was really great. I learned so much. I did so much. I had such an impact, right? And so both of those things always keep me up at night. And those are the things that we got the company started on those same principles. Super cool. 
Um, who or what would you say are the best three resources? It could be books, it could be people, mentors, people you follow, influencers, who you'd say have been inst most instrumental to your success over the last few years, let's say. Yeah, I think I think Jason Lemkin and Sasser is uh, such a wealth of knowledge. And if you supplement the, the content on the internet with Jason's personal thoughts on Twitter, which happened multiple times a day, there's a nugget in there basically every day or a link to a blog post that you can read on a deeper topic. Uh, I'm a huge Sasser fan and Sasser nerd and I've gone to the annual conference, which is like just like a mind-blowing event to, to sit in a room where someone has reached a billion of ARR and hear about their journey and, and take inspiration and then also take things you can go and improve every single day, right? Every single day. So I, I think that's, that's great resources. Um, yeah, the, the second kind of resource I, I would, I would strongly feel about is kind of understanding, uh, sales acceleration formula, like Mark Roberge and, and, and Aaron Ross, like predictable revenue, even though things are changing and new strategies continue to evolve like that. Those two books are the playbook for like how, HubSpot made it to a billion ARR last week or how Salesforce made it to like over a hundred billion ARR or whatever they're at now, right? Like um, you'll be a better CEO, you'll be a better founder, especially if you're doing an inside sales model that you're coming with some of this kind of knowledge. You may not have grown up in the sales world, right? I grew up in like the sales adjacent, like an operations type. So like I was exposed to like kind of the strategies. It's a big part of it, right? It's equally as important as being smart on the tech side. Uh, you can hire up and, and hire experts, like everyone should hire experts to run these departments, but they still need your support. And you still need to have that basic operation working knowledge, right? Absolutely. Um, in, in terms of people, like um, <laughs> there, there are two that come to mind. It's, it's Rob May, who is actually the founder of Backupify, who's one of our first angel investors that believed in, in this journey. And, and uh, I still text him all the time, get advice from him. So thank you, Rob. <laughs> And also another great uh, serial uh, entrepreneur here in Boston, Dave Balter, uh, who's on company seven or eight and lots of exits. And, you know, just good people that I can bounce different scenarios off of, whether we're raising cash or dealing with something or I'm kind of unsure what to do. I mean, those, those two, I would say, have, have made a huge impact on my life. Super cool. Yeah, I love Jason Lemkin. I actually first found him, I think, on, on Quora. And uh, yeah, I've got hooked on his content. Uh, Michelle, what does uh, success mean to you today? Whether that's personally, whether it's financially, whether it's for you know life, business, there's no right answer. Yeah, su success is, is those two things I already talked about, right? Um, finding more customers that want to take this journey with us, having customers who've already taken the journey, who are happy, who have meaningful, significant impact from using our software. That's that's always number one. Uh, taking care of our employees, making good on our promises that we said this would be a great place to work. It is. They're learning a ton. They're pushing themselves. Uh, you know, in terms of the in terms of the company, I mean, I think I think we can easily take take this into nine digits of ARR. And so, you know, along along the way, just kind of you know, continue on the next milestones. You know, the doubles and the triples, and continue that way. Right. Um, I know. I know that if we if we do the right things with customers and employees, all of the future stuff can happen. If we don't do the right things with customers and employees, 
uh, none of that can be enabled, right? And so success means that we, we're doing the first two things, right? Everything else that comes by product of raising capital and, and maybe having an exit or going public, all that stuff can be enabled in the future, which I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about, to be honest. I think about those two things that I know we can try to control customers and employee happiness. Love that. Uh, this has been great, Vishal. I, I appreciate you jumping on. Uh, what are your future plans for Link Squares going in, you know, for 2021? And where can our audience get in touch with you to learn more about what you're working on? Yeah, we're, we're making a huge investment in hiring. So if there's a, if there's a job role that looks interesting and, and uh, thinking about doing something new, come check us out. Uh, continue to grow uh, our team here. Uh, continue to innovate on the product side. Uh, continue to to grow fast and, and be a leader in the space. And so, yeah, uh, you can you can surely reach out to me Vishal at linsquares.com. Check out our website. Uh, ping me on LinkedIn. Cool, awesome. We'll add those links to our to our show notes for people to check out. Thank you so much, Vishal. Appreciate you jumping on SAS District Show today. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.